Hello and welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm personal finance writer Kate Bearley, here with my colleague, Deputy Editor Leonora Walters, and co-CEO of ETF provider Wisdom Tree Europe, Hector McNeil. So this week we're going to start off with the portfolio clinic. And this week we have a reader looking to boost his workplace pension, mainly via equity income funds. So Leonora, what have our experts said? Is that a good strategy or what's the, what's the problem with that? Well, in this case, no, it's not because our reader's not very diversified. All he's got are equity income funds and a, a couple of direct shareholdings. And the main problem with this is that uh, it means a lack of diversification. Now, this may sound odd with uh, a number of funds but the point is they have a lot of overlap equity income funds particularly those focused on large cap have increasingly smaller options to them because of cuts in the FTSE 100 and even before that there you know there was a limited amount so he's got um, several funds he's got several fund providers but that provides diversification of individual managers and providers not of the underlying shares so this guy is actually paying for just I don't know um, having you know the same thing over and over again and um it's actually pointed out here that um, taking as an example, he's got CF Woodford Equity Income, his top three holdings are Imperial Tobacco, AstraZeneca and GlaxoSmithKline. Now, this is also the top three holdings of another fund he holds, Artemis Income, and uh, another uh, fund that he holds, well, another three funds he holds, Rathbone Income and Newton UK Income and uh, Invest Perpetual High Income also have big investments in AstraZeneca. So he's not really achieving anything there. So what our experts suggest is that he needs to diversify a bit more, both by assets and um, geographically. And so, so are there any tips on how he could do that? Yeah, the, the commentators have given a, quite a few options here. One of the uh, IFA's, Angela Murphy, suggests a more diversified approach, including some limited exposure to overseas bonds and direct commercial property. And she's got some suggestions here. She suggests Premier multi-asset monthly income fund as which is a one-stop shop to get it or if he was to do it individually um, she suggests Smith & Rune some short-dated corporate bond fund and Threadneedle UK property fund um, and another of our commentators Patrick Connolly actually has some suggestions for diversifying the, the equity portion rather than you know uh, just into other assets and he says he could go for Artemis Global Income which we count among our IC Top 100 funds and um, invest in equity income from across the globe and has a, a small allocation of the UK and Threadneedle Global Equity Income which has an attractive yield and he also suggests some alternative assets Henderson Strategic Bond Fund, Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund and M&G Property Portfolio as well. So quite a lot of actual fund recommendations there, which is quite helpful. Yes. Um, And this is obviously all about generating income. Mm. Um, Are there any other clear ways that investors can draw an income? Yes, there are. I mean, the first point of call is obviously to look to sort of equity funds of higher yields or, you know, bond funds or commercial property funds. But if you're really strapped and you've got a growth portfolio, quite simply sell, you know, and you've got good growth, sell sell some of your holdings and cash in. And that can be quite tax effective if um, if you're not holding these funds inside an ISA because, um, you know, by selling at a profit, you incur 
capital gains tax rather than income tax. And there's quite a generous CGT allowance. Um, you know, and even after you use that, it's 18% tax for basic rate and I think 28% for higher rate taxpayers, which is considerably less than um, income tax at uh, 40 or 45% for higher and um, top rate taxpayers. Okay, great. So some pretty concrete kind of recommendations there. Um, And now we're going to move on to the ETF special section of this week's podcast. We launched a new feature last year where we put together two ETFs portfolios with the help of a couple of wealth managers. And these ETF portfolios were designed to generate income. They're kind of model portfolios made up of a mixture of global equity ETFs, bond ETFs, a whole range. And We kind of regularly check in to see how they're doing, how much income they've generated, which of our two experts are, you know, beating the other. So it's been a year since we launched our ETF portfolios for income. So we thought it would be a good time to check out how they're doing. Now, both of them have proved quite resilient against what have been very, very volatile markets. They have both lost a lot in terms of returns, but are generating quite good yields. Uh, so Paul Taylor, who is Managing Director of McCarthy Taylor, his portfolio fallen a little bit more than Alan Miller's, founder of SCM Private, but is yielding more. And they've both fallen less than FTSE 100, FTSE All Share and MSCI Europe. So, Hector, we've got you in to, to talk to us about all things ETF and have a look at these as well. Now, what do you think of these portfolios? What What's kind of been the reason behind this this resilience? Is it allocation? Is it diversification? What is it? Yeah, I think it's uh, exactly that. I mean, obviously, the power of ETFs are that you can, in a very cost-efficient way, get a uh, broad portfolio and, and have diversification. And I think both of these portfolios have diversification both in the sort of equity exposures that they uh, they provide. They also do have a decent slug of uh, bonds in there as well to give that protection as well. Okay. And in fact, the best performer is one of yours, <laughs> Wisdom Tree Europe's small cap dividend. So can you explain a bit about that ETF? Because it really does has stood out both this in this review and the last as one of the best performers, one of the only ones delivering positive returns, in fact. What's behind that strategy? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great fund, actually. Uh, uh, I believe it's Unsurprising the, that you say that. Well, well, well <laughs> the, the, the facts speak for themselves. I mean, I think it's actually the best performing small cap fund in the world, European small cap fund, so not just in ETF land, but in uh, in funds generally. The methodology, I think, is what resonates very well because, you know, one of the arguments, if you look at Europe generally, 80% of production and uh, revenues are created by SMEs. Uh, you know, it's very... Uh, so these are small businesses. Yeah, very very unique in the world, really. So if you believe that QE will kickstart the economy and, and uh, that ripple effect will probably impact on small and medium-sized businesses first, you know, largely family-owned uh, businesses and listed companies, you know, you're going to get that growth. And that's what's happened uh, with this product. So I think there's a couple of features to it which are quite interesting. It, it ranks uh, companies by the actual dividend it, they pay. Uh, so it's not fixated on yield, mm-hmm. uh, yield measurement, because yield is a simple number, but it doesn't really give an economic value, whereas uh, real cash dividends paid is real money. And also, it uh, has a way to rebalance each year that uh, if you get a predominance of a, of a, of a stock that 
dividend history doesn't continue, you know, you can realign the basket to re- reweight into other stocks that are paying those dividends. So the focus is kind of on long-term dividend growth it, and it, size of dividend. It, it is, and and I think you know as well as the, as well as a decent yield that you end up with in the in the product, it's also incredibly diversified. I mean, it's actually got hundreds of stocks in there, and one of the major problems you have with uh, small cap uh, funds is they tend to the baskets tend to be very concentrated and therefore they tend to breach their capacity very quickly mm. whereas this fund you know in the US the version of it's got over a billion dollars of assets in it uh, in Europe it's just under 50 million so it's got plenty of room it can grow I mean I guess the interesting thing about this is it's a play that works in specific markets isn't it so the the idea behind it is that with the European recovery taking hold, it's the smaller businesses that will benefit and the consumer. But if that recovery does not work out, this ETF, I'm assuming, could actually not do so well. I mean, is there a risk that this strategy, which has been very successful, will not continue to be as successful? Well, I think any any strategy runs at, runs at risk. I think the beauty of this product is that uh, you're exactly right. Small, small cap stocks have a much greater potential to grow uh, than large cap. Uh, the reality is, though, that uh, the probability of them growing is a lot less than a, than a large cap because they're they're in early stage. I think what's good about having the dividend screen is that that makes sure that you focus on companies that are quality companies that have the abilities and balance sheets that can pay dividends, and therefore you've got a quality screen in the uh, in the product as well as a dividend screen that makes sure you get better companies. I think. Okay, and in fact, we're talking there about the outperformance of small caps, and you've done some research, haven't you, on the outperformance of small caps over time. And what what have you said in that? I mean, it, should we all be backing small caps over large caps, full stop? I think when you're talking a recovery story uh, and you, you're going for growth, I certainly think a level of diversification should be used in small caps. I, I don't think you should end up putting all your money into one basket, but certainly part of your portfolio could be in there and, and, and you get both the uh, ability for that growth and also the ability for growth, not just in capital, but in income as well. And I think the reality is that with QE, and if we believe QE is going to continue for a long time, then obviously we're looking for growth there, and it's probably more likely to end in that space than any, anywhere else. So I would think the trade has got several years to go. It's not going to be a trade that goes overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is going to take time for that to resonate uh, and, and, and feed through. Okay. Now, one of the only other successful areas of these portfolios uh, was exposure to Japan. And that has been a very popular trade in the past year, two years, um, on the back of Abenomics. Do you still like Japan as an area to invest in? I mean, the market's obviously plunging currently. Well, I think all markets are plunging currently, (laughs) so I think that's that's a broad rush. Yes, I mean, the fundamentals of Japanese companies is very strong. And we, you know, we we certainly believe in that. And, uh, and we believe that uh, that those companies are still to grow. I mean, what, what we do believe is that uh, you can take the currency risk away from that trade, particularly with QE. We believe that the central bank will still continue QE uh, aggressively, and therefore that should depress the currency further. Uh, and we actually really favour uh, exporters for Japan on the basis that if there's a currency devaluation, then exporters should be the ones that recover the most. So certainly we would say if you're going to look at Japan, probably an export trade would probably be the best way to look at it versus uh, versus more domestic play in, uh, companies from there. Okay, that's, that's interesting because we've talked before about the weakening of the yen and hedged back-to-GDP products have historically done much better than their unhedged counterparts. Now, obviously, exporters are one way to play a weakening yen. Would you look to a hedged... Japan ETF over the next year because of this central bank move? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think the I think the combination of the two is really important because I think they're doing the same thing. Uh, so I think you 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 get both the uh, hedge exporter trade, uh, and I think you can look at different currencies as well. So you can look at a sterling 
hedge, but you could also look at a dollar hedge as well if you particularly believe that the dollar is going to be the run-to currency. You I mean, know, that you, sounds like you're making quite a lot of bets there. It, it does, but it gives you, again, choice. I think that uh, obviously the safest bet for a UK client would be to, uh, to stick in sterling, uh, certainly for the time being, and certainly as long as you see QE continuing in Japan. But at the same time, I think most people reference currency to uh, to the dollar. And uh, for the more sophisticated investors, it could be something to look at as a way to enhance returns even further. So you're, you think currency hedging can be useful? It's a tricky one, isn't it? And you say maybe an area for sophisticated investors. And there is an example in this portfolio. I mean, Paul Taylor chose to switch one of his ETFs to the iShares MSCI World GBP hedged in our last kind of portfolio rebalance and in fact, that has underperformed the just the plain iShares world. So, you know, you could look at that and think, actually, maybe it's better not to take bets on currency. Well, well I think the, the currency is obviously just one area of, of return of the products. And, uh, you know, with, without looking too much at the attribution or the underlying stocks in those baskets, it could be largely due to the, how they construct the actual index itself. You know, they could have stock caps and uh, country caps that uh, will skew the basket one way versus another. In our EM equity income products, for example, you know, we have a high preponderance of China and uh, China financials and uh, uh, Brazilian securities in there. So from that perspective, those will perform in some scenarios, they won't in others. So I think it's, I think the, the currency is just one aspect to it. Uh, you also have to look at what the underlying structure of the products is as well. And then we, we did touch on this before when talking about the wisdom through Europe's small cap dividend. But obviously, this is an income portfolio. So dividends yield are very important. But different ETFs, different income ETFs have different ways of looking at income, don't they? And, you know, should you be looking at yield? Should you be looking at cash dividend? And what's the risk of targeting an ETF with a very high yield? I think that the risks of targeting just yield in a, in a portfolio is you get a you, you will end up probably with a small cap mid-cap bias from that perspective. And it really doesn't uh, calculate in terms of what the true economic value of that uh, dividend is. You know, if uh, if there's a high yield, but it, but the company pays out a very small amount of cash, then uh, obviously that's not uh, economically meaningful. You know, you take the two largest dividend payers in the world, Exxon and uh, and uh, Apple, paying $11 billion of, uh, of dividends, then that's a very, very significant uh, footprint in, in the economic uh, arena. And you know, gives you some level of quality protection as well on the basis that their balance sheets are more likely to be able to sustain those dividends, uh, even though we obviously are seeing that challenge to a certain extent in the financial sectors and the resources sectors currently. But you know, we we have seen that you know the, there will be a decision taken by those companies to some extent to maintain their dividends for a period of time. Well, I mean, isn't that the issue that yield is often actually just a symptom of a rapidly falling share price and a dividend that Absol- may not continue? Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, you you've you've got that aspect to it as well that uh, particularly in volatile markets, uh, you know, I think in most steady state markets, maybe not so much so, but where you do have a a, a volatile market, you can get skews in those directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's really important that uh, people understand that. Uh, in these sort of products, there's always a, a, a rebalance methodology, which really is the thing that differentiates these sorts of products to market cap products. And obviously, that rebalance can happen at certain times of the year, you know, which are predefined and preset. So uh, uh, investors need to understand that that could skew their portfolio as well if there's a decision taken at a certain point in time. Okay. And just finally, before we move on from these portfolios, Mr. Miller, Alan Miller, he's decided that he wanted to rebalance away from a couple of themes which he thinks have done very well, but have now run their course. And those things are the strength of the dollar and emerging market small caps. 
both of which he's moved out of. Now, do you agree that those themes have run their course or are there other themes in here that you think won't continue to perform? Well, I think uh, EM small caps was a punchy trade then. Yeah. Never, never mind Never mind now. Um, I mean, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a bunch of asset classes if you're a contrarian investor you would look at and think that there's a, there's a theme that at some point that could be uh, worth investment, you know, and th- those sorts of things, are EM, China, uh, commodities generally, you know, and, and the, you know, I think it's not a matter of will those uh, assets return performance at some point. I think that's absolutely true. It's just a matter of when. And I think in these markets, it'd be a very brave person to be too contrarian at this point. So uh, so I think uh, certainly... I would I would not bet against the dollar in the uh, in the short to medium term. I think if you look at the fundamentals in the U.S. economy, uh, they're very strong. Uh, I, I think there's probably potential to look at small caps in the U.S. as a way to play that. Um, and certainly, you know, we've seen since this market volatility some great performance on our uh, large cap and small cap equity income U.S. products. Uh, so, you know, I think our large caps outperformed the S&P since the start of the year by six percent. You know, which I think shows some somewhat the defensive nature of these types of strategies. Mm. Although it's interesting with the US, I mean, some people seem to be very gloomy about it now and kind of reversing that belief in the US as being the one positive <laughs> area to back in the world. Look, I didn't feel like that until after I heard Yellen yesterday, uh, and certainly uh, she was she was incredibly depressive. I thought on the uh, on, on on a speech, but I still feel that uh, the numbers coming out of the US are still better than anywhere else in 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 the world. Uh, and I think they obviously still, you know, the, the world relies on a strong dollar, and I think that's still going to be the case for for a period of time. And I also believe that, you know, based on the last couple of weeks, we're probably going to see uh, 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 rates dropping again in the US, which again I think will give a kickstart uh, there. You could you could argue it's uh, somewhat of a lesser of evils rather than uh, what what's uh, what's going to you know what's going to outperform. So I think um, I would be uh, a little bit more conservative with my money uh, at this point in time. Okay. And now I wanted to move on to something which was raised in our last podcast by someone who was uh, potentially slightly anti-ETF. And it's to do with ETFs and ETF pricing in periods of very extreme volatility. Now, we were talking about the quite dramatic market events of last year when we had that China Black Monday in August and a massive period of volatility when ETFs suffered big issues with tracking error. Um, I mean, ETFs are actually supposed to trade in line with the stocks they own with very little tracking error. And that's one of the things that we always say are good about ETFs. And that's because of the role of market makers and the kind of middlemen that we call authorised participants. But last year, we saw this enormous difference between the value of the underlying stocks held in some ETFs and their pricing. So the iShares core S&P 500 fell by 26% against an S&P 500 fall of 5.3% in the opening minutes of trading. Now that did recover, but people started saying, you know, actually ETFs are maybe, we've got more to worry about here than we thought we had. Can you give us your take on what happened in the US last year and was is it something to worry about? Well, well one very important observation to make first off is, is it happened in the US but didn't happen in Europe. Yeah. And we've got ETFs here equally as we have in the US. So I think that should give a clear indication that uh, it's probably not down to the product. It's probably down to the market structure because ultimately if you've got one market that uh, has that feature and uh, another that doesn't, it's more likely to be the market than the product. And so what is it about the US market? 
Well, I think the, uh, the, I mean, really it comes down to how the exchanges treat extreme uh, volatility events. And uh, a lot of the exchanges uh, in Europe are very sophisticated uh, circuit breakers where they will only allow certain tolerances on, on falls in equities generally. It's not just specific Before they hold trading. Correct, correct. So so you don't find that uh, you've got the same scenario. So I think there's been a, a huge industry movement in the US to address that and work with the exchanges and the index providers, etc., to figure that out. What I would say is that, uh, you know, the the ultimate uh, uh, protection for the client is obviously the uh, NAV is given each day. So the fund operates exactly the same way as a mutual fund on that perspective, that the uh, the true NAV is the end of day NAV, and there was no disruption or mispricing or tracking error with regards to that. These mispricing movements were a general symptom of uh, extreme movements on the exchanges generally and were brought into line very quickly and I think one of the very important features of an ETF is because it is open-ended and because it does trade on exchange it does have multiple market makers if there ever is a mispricing between the underlying and the ETF itself then there's an arbitrage opportunity that's brought into line very very quickly. But wasn't the issue that this arbitrage opportunity was not brought into line as quickly as it should have been I mean normally these arbitrages are worked out you know minute by minute the trade's ongoing and this should not have been able to happen. Well, well, again, again, I would say that's down to the market mechanism, not down to the product. Uh, mm. I mean, the product, the product is there to be used and and uh, and priced, and those prices were coming in from market makers and investors and were controlled by the exchange. It wasn't the ETF itself. So, you know, I think I think you'll find that uh, you know the the uh, there's been lots of lessons learnt on that generally on that market moves that uh, that the sort of exchange controls you need to be able to manage that will, be, will have been put in place and uh, won't happen again. And so what's been happening in the UK? How have ETFs been holding up over here amid the recent volatility? Well, well, again, you, you know, you've, you've, you've not seen any of those, those issues from that perspective. I mean, every now and again, you will get pricing issues because ultimately uh, some ETFs will have less market makers than others. So if a market maker has a technical issue or a problem and their prices go away, then it's totally reliant on the bid offer spreads that are coming in from the, uh, from the underlying investors, which may be thin. But they're very common currencies. It's what happens. And they're all within the tolerances. I mean, each exchange will have a contract with the market makers that says they have to maintain a certain performance. And if they don't maintain that performance, then they will be uh, kicked out of the product. So uh, all of it's governed by rules and procedures. Uh, and there's been no incidents or issues or, or whatever from that perspective. One thing I would say is that, uh, you know, you're talking about problems over, over minutes here. Uh, you've got to bear in mind that uh, if you have a mutual fund or another asset management product, it might take you several days in order to make a uh, transaction, by which point whatever's happened in the market, whether it's dropped 5 10%, you know, you're you're uh, pretty much a slave to the fortune of that. Mm. Uh, so, uh, you know, the question uh, I would have is that, okay, you might have some issues over a few minutes. Is that preferable over uh, issues of, uh, of of several days? Yeah, although, I mean, that and that is a reason why many people would go for an ETF rather than a, sure. a mutual fund, for example. I think the key thing that UK investors want to know is when the market underlying or the stocks underlying their ETF get into real trouble. So, for example, think of Chinese stocks amid that crash. Will they be able to get out of the ETF at fair value or are there problems with liquidity and with pricing that people need to bear in mind when investing in these ETFs? Yeah, well, well like any any product or any market, 
there will always be times when they'll be stressed, you know, whether that's selling cars or uh, airline tickets or whatever, you know, systems fall over or, or whatever the story is. Uh, I don't think there's any, any concerns investors should have regards to liquidity. I mean, it is, uh, it's a very robust product. It's been in the market for 20 plus years. You know, market crashes always uh, uh, present problems for the whole market, never mind uh, ETFs. Generally, ETFs track very, very liquid underlyings. Uh, it's very difficult to do ETFs that don't track uh, liquid underlyings. That's why you don't see things like physical property or private equity in ETF wrappers. Uh, you know, you need to be able to rely on daily liquidity and uh, intraday liquidity. So, uh, you know, generally these markets are extremely liquid from that perspective. One thing I would say, like all product sets i mean the etf is just a wrapper it's not an asset class you know it's a, it's a, it's an asset management wrapper it's just better technology in my opinion than mutual funds uh but what that means is over time you'll see etf spreading out from just being general beta market cap products to uh having from uh simple to complex you know which really means you know beta to active are you saying that you need to you know etf's just a wrapper well, what you need to think is the risk of what you're investing well, well, yeah what was what i was about to say exactly that that you know investors should be extremely clear and understand what they're actually investing in and make sure they read that because there will be you know etfs that do give access to say frontier markets for example you know and obviously if you're going to trade a frontier market versus the s&p 500 it's a totally different paradigm when it comes to liquidity so all i would say is that uh, and, and in etf re- i mean just just for information my first career in ETFs was trading ETFs, you know, not issuing ETFs. So I've traded ETFs for four or five years. So, you know, I've seen them and I know what the uh, what the story is. And all I can say is that an ETF will rec- represent the underlying liquidity. So if uh, in a frontier market, the uh, liquidity uh, becomes choppy, then the ETF will become choppy. Okay. Finally, we're going to turn to an investment trust, the JP Morgan Chinese Investment Trust for our news page. So, Leonora, what is going on with this trust? Um, Well, JP Morgan Chinese Investment Trust is changing its investment policy. Namely, the trust is going to potentially be able to invest much more in China-listed A shares. Now, the investment trust previously had a cap on 20% of assets for A shares or Asia American depository receipts and this is being raised to 50% and the reason for this according to JP Morgan is that there are a number of companies um, listed in mainland China that provide opportunities um, let's say to the new growth new op- new, new, new kind of areas emerging um, and um, these can't be accessed by buying shares in Taiwan or Hong Kong um, where the fund has um, in, in the past um, put a lot of his assets. Um, I did point out to them that, you know, it's probably not the best market in the world at the moment, to put it mildly, and it's quite volatile and said, yes, it is volatile. But um, yeah, you know, these opportunities are um, important, um, you know, things for, for a China fund to access. Now, JP Morgan currently has about 8% of its assets in A shares, and it, they wouldn't comment on, you know, what um, sort of like level it would go up to. But I think if they've increased the limit from 20 to 50%, we can expect to see that A share allocation in um, JP Morgan Chinese to rise. Um, along with this, to reflect 
set that they're doing, they're changing their benchmark, um, which I think is a good thing because um, you want the benchmark to reflect the underlying assets in the trust. JP Morgan has been using MSCI Golden Dragon. Um, this doesn't include A shares. So it's been changed to MSCI China Index, which does have some um, A share American depository receipts. Okay, so that's the interesting stuff there. And I think that's all we've got time for this week. So for more on everything we've discussed today, take a look at this week's magazine. Otherwise, it just remains for me to thank Hector McNeil of Wisdom Tree Europe and Leonora Walters. Thanks for listening. <laughs>